Thanks for coming, everybody. So glad you're here. want to welcome uh, those at the downtown campus and, and watching online. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew's Gospel at Matthew chapter 16. So if you have your Bible, turn there. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a, a kind of a, um, a running start into the passage where we are because this passage really is a turning point within Matthew's Gospel. So last week, we talked about Jesus in this engagement that he was having with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And And the problem that he was experiencing with them is they were asking for more proof that he was the Messiah, that he was the Christ. And so last week we talked about this conditional faith that the Pharisees and the Sadducees expressed because they they wanted more. They wanted more than what they had seen before to kind of prove to Jesus. They were like asking for a miracle on demand. And Jesus talked about this kind of conditional faithlessness as leaven. And he told his disciples, beware, beware of the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And it was this point, I think Jesus began to make a break. He began to distance himself from what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their influence, especially with the disciples, to then beginning to lay a gospel foundation for what he wanted the disciples to understand about what he was doing. And you're going you're gonna to see that over the next couple of weeks. This particular section of scripture is just, it's loaded. It's, it's heavy, uh, lots of great doctrine in it, lots of great teaching. And so Matthew chapter 16 begins to highlight for us two critical activities of the church. And one is the confessing of Jesus as the divine Christ, son of God. And secondly, the following of a suffering king. Both of those, both of those things you're going to see over the next couple of weeks. This confessing Jesus as divine son of God, and then what it means to follow him as the suffering king. These two things really do create the church, this confession and following. So look with me, Matthew chapter 16, picking up in verse 13. This is now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is. And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. We're in the middle, really the middle of Matthew's gospel. And, and this, this really becomes um, a, a centerpiece. I, I think this, this confessional moment uh, is something that Matthew has been kind of moving towards for some time. And really, uh, it, it is this, this beautiful central passage because it is the first time where Jesus' identity has been expressed, where he has been declared as the son of the living God, the Christ. It, not only that, but it's this passage that we're looking at. It's created controversy really for generations about what does this mean? What does it mean? This is the moment where Simon is called Peter. We, we typically call him Peter, but his name's Andrew and Simon were brothers. And this is the moment where Simon gets a name change. 
And Jesus calls him Petrus or rock. And it's, it's this moment of like, what does that mean? What does it mean for Peter to be called the rock? What does it mean that Jesus says on this rock, I'm gonna build my church and the keys of the kingdom he's going to give. And so this is what we, we're gonna dive into this over the next couple of weeks and, and look more closely. Matthew mentions Caesarea Philippi as the location. And I think this is interesting, and I don't, I don't want to just move right past it, because Caesarea Philippi was a, a, a pretty successful, modernized city. It was a city that um, Caesar had given Herod the Great, and Herod then gave it to his son Philip. Philip modernized it, rebuilt it, and then named it Caesarea, and then after himself, why, why, why wouldn't you, uh, Caesarea Philippi. So it was a city that was in the very northernmost of Israel, and it's kind of a coastal city, uh, lots of traffic, lots of diversity, kind of crossroads of the world. In it, it had a lot of world religions too. There was a Syrian temple there to the, the god of Baal. There was Pan, a Greek god, a temple there, temple worship there, as well as a, a very beautiful temple to Caesar himself. And so it was, it was this place, which I would say like it's on the fringe of Israel, where we get this confession. And I think there's an importance for Matthew to share with us that it's always interesting the places where the confession of Jesus happens, where the identity of Jesus is revealed. It's not in the heart of Israel. It's, it's not in Jerusalem. You would think that would be the place where Jesus would be recognized, where the first profession of who Jesus is as the Christ, as the Messiah would be seen. But it's not it, it's on the outskirts. And I love the way that that just seems consistent with so often, the places that God uses are a surprise. The people that the kingdom of God opens up to are not always the ones that you would expect. And it's in Caesarea Philippi, of all places, where you hear this confession and this critical moment that Jesus is laying this new foundation of the gospel. And it's the only time that we see Jesus ask the disciples directly who they are, who he is. And I don't know, this is Matthew chapter 16. We've gone a long way. And it's it's here. Why not earlier? Like what's happening in this? Like I just love this. I wonder if it doesn't give us even any insights into this idea of believing and belonging. That there are times where someone could hear the gospel for the very first time and give their lives to Christ. But there are a lot of times where somebody just wants to be part of something for a while. To be part of your life. To share a meal to have some of their questions answered, you know, and, and to pick up a friend on their way to finding a savior. I just, I think there's something really fascinating that Jesus would wait this long. It's Matthew chapter 16 before he point blank asked the disciples, all right, who do you think I am? What's happening in your heart? What have you learned up to this point? But first he says, who do the people say that I am? Who, who does everybody around here say that I am? And the disciples say, oh, well, some say you're John the Baptist, Elijah, I heard Jeremiah the other day, or, or just one of the prophets. And I don't know if this is true to just being in Caesarea Philippi in this very kind of diverse, multi-religious context. But in other words, nobody really knows. They're probably not saying that Jesus has been reincarnated from one of the prophets, but they could say, well, maybe he seems important. Maybe he's one of these prophets come back to life. Like maybe he is, you know, Elijah. Maybe he's John the Baptist. In other words, we don't really know but we know he's a big deal. We know he's special. We know he's great, but they're unclear. And I, I, I think that's true. The world looks at Jesus and they can surmise he's important, but they don't know why. And then Jesus turns to the disciples and says, so who do you think I am? 
Who do you guys think I am? And it's, it's the moment, right? Like, like, this is it. Like, it's coming to this place. Jesus is like, so do you know what's been going on here? Have you been paying attention? What have you seen? Who do you think I am? Listen, you go back, all the way back into Matthew chapter 3. Jesus was baptized, right? And when he goes under the water, he comes up. And the scriptures say that the, the heavens opened up and like thunder, God spoke, spoke out loud that this is my son in whom I love and am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit then descended like a dove and, and rested upon Jesus. And from there, Jesus goes out in the wilderness and he's tempted. But then when he comes back, he preaches the most amazing message. We have it from Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And throughout this message, it's just over and over and over about the kingdom of God, over and over about who the people are that are truly blessed, truly fortunate, truly lucky. And it's not the people that you would think. It's actually the people that are poor or the people that are mourning or the, or the people that are without are actually going to be part of the kingdom. It's these outsiders. It's the people on the fringe. He says, the kingdom of God is going to come to you. And he preaches this most amazing message. And out of that, he just starts healing people. Every infirmity, every sickness and disease, people just keep coming to him in crowds. And Jesus lays his hands on them and touches them. But then he lays his hands on a leper. You weren't supposed to do that. Lepers were unclean. If you touched a leper, they would make you unclean. But something about the cleanliness of Jesus is overwhelming to the uncleanliness of this leper. And he's healed. There's the faith of the centurion who says, if you'll just say the word, he's not even a Jewish, he's not even Israelite. He's a Gentile, he's a Roman soldier. And he says, if you'll just say the word, I know my servant will be healed. Then Jesus calms a storm. And then he exercises some demons out of some guys and throws them into some pigs. Do you remember that story? All right, some guys hanging out in a cemetery. Nobody can do anything with them. Jesus goes up, takes all the demons out, the legion of demons, throws them to the pigs. The pigs go off the cliff. Then they bring Jesus, this guy, he's paralyzed. And Jesus reaches down and says to him, your sins are forgiven. Well, everybody's in an uproar. No one can say that. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, how about this? What's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And then he says, get up and walk to show you that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. After that, Jesus is just walking through a crowd and a woman grabs the hem of his garment. Like nobody even sees her. She just sneaks up behind Jesus, grabs the hem of his garment, and she's healed immediately. Jesus is walking through from story to story to passage. And then we get all these parables. I mean, he's talking about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is going to work like a, like a sower, who's casting seed generously. Then he tells a story about weeds. Then there's a moment where he talks about leaven and mustard seeds. Even this one about a treasure in a field where a man went out and discovered a treasure in a field and then in his joy sold everything that he had to go out and buy that field. Jesus moves from that moment to feeding 5,000 people. He feeds 5,000 people and then walks on water, then feeds another 4,000 people. Right? It's like, and then there's this Oh man, this critical moment where Jesus is not even in Israel and this Canaanite woman, Gentile woman comes up to him asking for a miracle and Jesus puts her off and says, ah, this isn't, I'm not really here for you right now. Right? I'm here for the children of God, not for the dogs. And she says, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. Calls him Lord. 
And then Jesus turns to his own disciples and says, who do you think I am? Who do you think I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, son of the living God. Nails it. I mean, he gets it. It's this moment for him where Peter's like, yes, he doesn't say, we think you are. He says, you are. He doesn't say, for us you are. He says, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And I love the way it keeps moving forward. I love what you begin to hear. Because when he says you are the Christ, what he's saying is the true living God has given earth his son as Israel's long-awaited for king. That's what he's saying. And from this, verse 17, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I wonder if there's a little bit of wordplay here because Jesus has just said that you're the Christ, son of the living God. And then Jesus turns to Peter and says, you're, you know, you're Peter, son of Jonah. Like I'm God's son, you're Jonah's son, right? There's a little thing like you're, you're right. I am the son of the living God and you are son of Jonah and flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. In other words, Peter, I know what you just said is so fantastic. You couldn't have gotten there by yourself. Like, and, and maybe that's a, a wonderful reality that what we see him saying is like, listen, you're not going to come to this conclusion just on your own. That for you to say that, for you to know that, for you to reveal the identity of Jesus means that the Father is already at work. He's already moving. He's already doing something in you. That The Father is giving faith. It's not Peter's character. It's not his sensitivity. It's not his openness. There is nothing about Peter Jesus is saying that would connect that to this confession. The only thing that connects that, Peter, to this confession is, the, is God himself. The Father's at work. The Father's gifting and giving you faith. Look what Jesus says in Matthew eleven, twenty-seven. 27. When you consider this idea of what it is to know God, how to recognize God, how to see God, Jesus says this, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus is saying, if anybody knows the Father, it's through the Son. And if anybody knows the Son, it's a work of the Father. In other words, this, Scripture holds up, that only God can know God. Only God can know God. So when we do, when we realize who God is, when we know God, it is an unmerited gift. It's God's grace. Faith in Christ is a gift from God. That's what we're highlighting. That's what Jesus is saying. Like God's working, God's gifting. Philippians 1.29 says that we've been granted unto us to believe in Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, both grace and faith, gifts. God gives. So God's working. Like, you can almost like, when, when Peter says that, Jesus is like, this is fantastic. I mean, the Father is at work in you, Peter. Like the Father is moving, the Father is willing, the Father is involved. The confession of Christ isn't left up to chance. It's not left up to chance. Listen, we wouldn't want that. Let me give you an illustration why this is important. Imagine that you have a sick child. Some of you know that reality. Imagine you have a sick child. 
and you have the cure. You have what they need. You have the remedy. You have the answer to their need. And as a good parent, right, you want them to have that. You, you, want them, you don't want them to experience crisis anymore. You want them to experience life. And so what you do is you put the cure and your child in a room and turn off the lights, hoping that the child might stumble around the room long enough and bump into the cure and figure out what to do with it. You wouldn't do that. Right? As a good parent, you would make sure that the cure that they needed, the thing that would give them life, that you would not only put it in their hand, but you would help administer to that to them so that they would be healed, so that they would be saved. How much better is God's goodness than ours? That's what Jesus is trying to say. God's goodness is greater. His love isn't small. His love is worldwide. And his resources are infinite. And his passion is that you would have life. And God has shown us over and over that he will leave the 99 for the one again and again and again. You don't want the answer and confession, the life-giving confession of Jesus as Christ to be something left up to chance. You want it to be in the hands of a generous and abundant and loving God who is working first in us to bring us to this point where we know God in this way. This is what we get, and God's working this way. When we confess, God has already been drawing. When we confess, God has already been working. Verse 18, Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter. There's, the, there's where we get the name change. You are Petros. And on this Petra, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now this verse, this one verse has kind of been a, a, a lightning rod of controversy for generations. You are likely Catholic or Protestant, depending on how you interpret this verse. And, and you get, there's a word play happening here because Jesus looks at Peter and calls him Petros with an O, O-S. And then he says, and I will build my church on this rock, Petra. So what you do with that, like, the decision point is this. Is Jesus building his church on Petro, Peter, right? In Peter's person, in Peter's office. Is Peter now kind of the, the first among equals and God is going to build his church through Peter? Or is this rock, this Petra, the confession that, Jesus, that Peter has just made about Jesus? Is it the person, right? Or is it the confession? That's the great debate. And you can go home and, and kind of look that up online. <laughs> see if you can solve it. No, I, honestly, I, I will talk about it. Because I think the rock, the gates, the key, there's, there's a connection. But that's next week. Next week. You got to come back next week. What I want to finish with this morning is Jesus making the statement is, I will build my church. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Because there's a lot of times, I think, we can look at the state of the church, maybe in our culture, and lament its significance, its influence, wonder where it is kind of within what God is doing in these days and in the kingdom work. And I love what Jesus says, I will build it. It's going to happen. Jesus is committed to it. And so what does it mean when Jesus is talking about building this church? You know, I, um, I had this great opportunity last Sunday night to be part of a church launch, a church plant. Um, River Tree had a special role in being part of Grace Community Church out in Gurley. 
the, the pastor there was our student minister, high school minister, Josh Evans. And so Josh went, uh, has been working with that church and that core group for the last few months. There are a few families from River Tree uh, that have been part of that. <clears throat> and they had their, excuse me, they had their, their first um, opening kind of launch night uh, last Sunday night. And in it, they took the Lord's Supper together. Uh, they installed elders. They even baptized somebody. And I'm sitting there watching this experience, kind of like looking at the, the joy, the excitement, this work that God is doing that seems so new, so real, so ready to bless that community and share Jesus with others that I just thought, Lord, thank you for building your church. Like, thank you that you're more committed to it than we are. That this is your passion, this is your heart, that you're doing something significant. When you say you're gonna build your church, you will. <clears throat> Sinclair Ferguson makes this comment. He says, the church is God's new community for his purpose conceived in a past eternity, being worked out in history and being perfected in future eternity. It's not just isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness, but rather to build his church that is to call out of the world a people for his own glory. When Jesus says, I will build my church, he's talking about a people that are formed by the proclamation of Jesus' identity and his supremacy. And then from that, they begin to embody this confession to where even Peter talks about it later in his own letter that you and I actually become rocks, stones, living stones. Let me show you how Peter connects these ideas for what Jesus is building. First Peter chapter two, verse four. Peter says, as you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a priesthood, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. When Peter starts talking about this idea of being stones, actually living stones, he begins to reference this hope that had been long since back in the Old Testament. See, when Solomon built the first temple, there was this experience of God's presence, a dwelling place of God. There was this, um, this beauty and connection, and then the temple was destroyed in 586 BC by the Babylonians. And about a half century to more after that, the temple was rebuilt. But the second temple was never the same. The second temple never had the original glory of the first. It missed that kind of Shekinah glory presence of God. It didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. And so as people began to experience the second temple, they began to long for that day where God's presence would be with his people again that God would do something powerful. And the book of Isaiah became one of those books within Jesus' day and culture that the Jews looked at as a place where they could see hope, they could see promise. And Isaiah 28, 16 says exactly what you just heard Peter talking about. It says, so this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. 
So God would lay a cornerstone. That was the promise in Isaiah. God would lay a cornerstone that would return glory and salvation. And with the help of Isaiah, what began to happen is that the image of this temple began to mix with a person. There's a Hebrew wordplay. The word stone and the word son. The word stone is abin. The word son is ben. And so this Eben and Ben began to merge and began to mix. And when the people of God began to hear God's promises about this stone that he was going to lay in Zion again, that his glory would come back, that God's presence would return to his people, it became more about a person, a son, someone that God would send. So when Peter says the living stone, what he's saying is it's Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the long-awaited promises, the glory of God returning. And that now, verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So no longer is salvation going to be connected with Jerusalem. Salvation is connected to Jesus. No longer are we going to experience the hope of dwelling with God and being in the presence of God at the temple. It's actually going to be with God's people. These living stones that are going to come together and be fit together wonderfully. Jesus says, I will build my church. It's the very heart and center of all of God's activity within the world. If God is going to dwell anywhere, it will not be in a location. It will be through a people. And that's why... So you're more the church than the building we're in. You are. It's the people of God coming together. And this is what we begin to see, that you are being built into a spiritual house. You, plural, all of us being fit together, which means your life and my life are going to come together. And the uniqueness of your life, and every stone is unique. You're unique. Imagine the handiwork of the builder who will take every unique stone and make it fit. Big stones, small stones, tall, short, educated stones, uneducated, rich, poor, like diverse in background, diverse in gifting and talents. And Jesus says, he's building his church. I will build it. He will fit us together. In other words, if there's somebody here that you don't like, well, in a little while, they'll grow on you. It could change. That he would fit us together. He would begin to position our lives so that you actually become the place where the presence of God gets experienced, where he dwells. I think sometimes there's this confusion between the universal church and the local church, the kind of the, the invisible church and, and the visible church. See, the universal church is made up of all people who've placed their faith in Christ. Of at all times and all places, when you trust Jesus Christ with your Lord and Savior, you become part of that universal church. And it is this global community where every tribe, every tongue, every nation is included, right? It's the universal church. It's just, it's, it's beautiful when you think about it. Uh, reaching and scope. It's fantastic. It's, it's gorgeous. The local church, not so gorgeous. Local church, a little messy, the local church, we have background checks. Right? We, have, we, have, we have bills to pay. Right? There's facility requ request forms. There's, right now, there's a sick kid in the nursery coughing on your healthy kid. Like That's, <laughs> that's the local church. That, that's what's happening right now. Listen, we should all 
love the idea of the universal church and what God is doing through Jesus globally. But it's, it's the local church where grace, more grace is needed. It's the local church where you actually get to forgive somebody of their sins. It's the local church where all of a sudden the spiritual becomes visible. Right? And this is something really important to what Jesus was saying. Jesus would often talk about these big spiritual realities, but he says if they don't become tangible, if they don't kind of move into the practical, if they don't move into your life in a real way, then did you really believe them? Do you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Well, tell me, how do you love your neighbor? They're connected. You can't say you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and not love your neighbor. So what happens with the local church is it becomes the tangible, visible expression of the universal church, but it gets grittier, it gets real, it's where grace is needed, it's where we learn, it's where we get accountable, it's where we get encouraged, it's in the local church, and Jesus says, I will build my church, and I will take people, and I will begin to fit their lives together so that the glory of what he's doing through the gospel, through the cross and the resurrection, gets felt. This is fantastic. Jesus is building, our, building the church, and what he's teaching us so importantly is Christianity, although deeply personal, was never meant to be private. Christianity is not about your personal devotional time, your personal worship, your personal ministry, but it's connected to stones touching one another, life together, something being built by our lives. This is what we begin to see. Jesus is building his church. And Peter says that we're these living stones fit together. In other words, being with Christ means that you are with Christ with others who are in Christ. To be in Christ means that you are in Christ with others who are also in Christ. You're not saved as an individual to then decide, am I going to be part of a church? As you are saved you become part of a redeemed people, a family. And so when Jesus says, I will build my church, he's looking for our lives to connect because when we come together, our lives actually create a living temple, a place of God's dwelling. The local church does more than kind of gather on Sunday mornings to sing, read some encouraging scripture, we gather on Sunday mornings to renew our covenant with God and one another. We celebrate the resurrection. We serve one another. And we, we wonderfully create this place where the boundaries of earth and heaven blur. Where there are things of heaven held out for us in the future that already get to be glimpsed and felt now in the church. The church is the place where the new creation has already happened in us, in our hearts. And this is why the writer of Hebrews talks so much about why we gather and the importance of our gathering. Let me show you this as I conclude. Verse 19 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up to us through the curtain, that is, through his own flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from any evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Did you pick up the imagery? As the writer of Hebrews is talking, he's creating this imagery of the holy of holies that we can enter into the holy place. Now, if you remember that, the temple had this place, the holy of holies, where the presence of God dwelt. But the problem with the holy of holies is it was exclusive. You couldn't get in. One guy, one time in in a year was allowed access to that type of intimacy and connection with God's presence. If you tried to enter at any other point, you would be killed. And the curtain of the Holy of Holies was a constant reminder, don't go in. Don't go in. You can't. You're not worthy. You're not holy. You will die. And then what the writer of Hebrews begins to say is Jesus did something. That Jesus opened up the curtain by the shedding of his own blood that we actually now have a holy of holies that's accessible, that Jesus has made the presence of God by the Spirit of God now something that can come and indwell us to be part of the church, that we become living stones now and we're part of a new temple, that, that God is doing something in his church that's fantastic and different and new. Before you couldn't go close, now you can. And so he's saying like, so now don't give up meeting together. You might think because of what Jesus did on the cross and the resurrection that we really shouldn't gather anymore. Like we're just free to do whatever we want. He's like, don't do that. Because every time you come together, you put on display the gospel. Every time you gather, you're reminded that before you couldn't, that there was a division, there were barriers, and now there's not. So every time the church gathers, it puts on display the work of Jesus by your life and my life and your life coming together and being close to one another. Because before there was hostility, before there was division, before we were enemies, and now we're family. So don't forsake the gathering. Continue to gather. You know, when we gather on Sunday morning, when the local church comes together, when we're built up in this way, one of the things I love about Sunday morning is this, is that you could be doing a multitude of other things but you came here. And so for this hour or two hours, you decided I'm not gonna produce, I'm not gonna create something, I'm just gonna receive. Because the greatest need of your life, your acceptance before God has been resolved, has been remedied because of Jesus. And now because you're accepted by God, you rest. And you make that a pattern of your life, a rhythm of your life to recline and to be free people. And this is what we do on Sunday mornings. It's an act of faith, not to be out there creating and acquiring and producing and accomplishing, but to be right here and say, God, it's yours. I'm yours. And the great work you've done is for me. And not only that, but when we come together, we not only, not only does Jesus hear us, but we hear him. Jesus hears us too. I can't tell you how many Sundays people leave and they'll say, God really spoke today, through that passage, through what happened in our time together, through that testimony, through that music, do you realize like it's not about who's on stage with the microphone, it's about Jesus building his church, speaking to you, encouraging you, opening up his word and seeing it come alive in the way that your heart needs to hear specifically for you today. Jesus says, when you gather, there's something happening, the presence of the Lord, and I will build it. I will build this. That starting point for all of our lives to be part of something like that, the presence of God, the glory of God, the dwelling place of God, it it starts with how you answer the question, who is Jesus? 
The question always goes from out there, who does the world say that I am, to something personal. Who do you say that I am? This morning, what would it look like for you to leave here boldly proclaiming with greater confidence that Jesus is the Christ, my King, Son of the living God? If that's your confession, it changes everything. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have um, created and publicly set aside a people for your name. so that we would, upon believing, enter into a new family with a new life, a new identity, a new home. That we would have a new place to grow and experience the grace of God all around the person and work of Jesus. We thank you for the church. We thank you that our lives could be so fit together that something as glorious as the very presence and glory of God could be known, could be touched, could be experienced. Thank you, Jesus, for making that, setting that before us. We ask this morning for even a bolder confession in our lives that Jesus is our King, the Son of God. May that be present in our hearts. May that be expressed in our gatherings with greater and greater confidence. That, Jesus, we see your commitment to your people to help our lives, to save us, and to have our lives fit together at the cost of your own. And so we ask that we would glorify you, display this great sacrifice and great work, function as a family and a church, and that this place would continue to be a place of personal and corporate transformation. God, change us through the love and work and life of Jesus. Lord, let us see him for all that he did. Father, would you work in our hearts to provide faith? And would there be even a new confession? I just pray that if you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never made that confession in your own heart, that he is your king and that he is the son of God for you, that today you would and today everything would change. And today you would be part of the church that thing that Jesus is building for his glory, for his name, and for our good. We pray this in his name. Amen.